Coming up this hour, we have some headlines for you, and then we're joined by Dr. David Anderson, the founder of Safe Families. You're listening to The Common Good. Everyone, welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Howdy, doody, neighbor. So glad that you are here. That is Ned Flanders, right? Howdy, doody, neighbor? Yeah, that sounds like Ned Flanders. Or is that Wilson from Home Improvement? Uh, oh, good question. They're That's probably pretty question. similar, aren't they? They are. <laughs> I know Ned Flanders was always like nope. oikily doikily. Or uh, Wilson's was um, Heidi, Heidi Ho neighbor. neighbor. Yes. That's right. That's right. With Tim okay. Allen. Oof, what a way to open the show. It is think, hump day. Yeah. <laughs> hump day. You combined uh, Ned Flanders, I think Wilson, and Mr. Rogers all into one person there. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> one, if, one if, if I could be one person, it would be a merging of those three. That would that's be not a bad neighbor right that's there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's State Farm right there. That's uh, <laughs> no shoot. Who's who's like a good neighbor? All state. State farm. No state oh, farm. Oh, it is State Farm. Oh, I was right. Ah, see. Yeah. Starting the show doubting myself. It's only downhill from here. Um, I do want to say coming up next, we have an interview with uh, Dr. David Anderson, the founder of Safe Families. And boy, oh boy, if you're unfamiliar with Safe Families, cannot recommend that you stick around because I, I think the work that they do is just remarkable. And we're really excited to talk with him. Uh, we do. I think this is almost like a regular thing now. We've been starting the show with just a couple of headlines. Um, not always like groundbreaking stories, as you'll soon see in a second, because I'm really hoping Brian takes the bait with this first one. Uh, I will. Okay, I perfect. Mean, Why don't you want to kick us off then? I just love the articles that you find too. Uh, <laughs> the The title is this. It says, uh, "Science say science says people who swear a lot actually make better friends." <laughs> it says finding the right word to accurately express our emotions, particularly when we're angry, frustrated, or stressed, can be difficult. In these instances, swearing can be very helpful with effectively getting our point across or releasing pent-up emotion. Science, however, says that people who swear might be more intelligent and possibly make better friends. So there's a lot more reasoning behind it. You can find that at our Facebook page. But uh, I'm going to take this to heart, I think. I think people in my church, on the radio, we're going to go for this because I'd like to be nothing more than a good friend. <laughs> well, and I don't want to uh, – I won't make you answer on air because, you know, for pastors, there's certainly like a – I'm mm, moral component, I suppose, but it uh -huh. feels like every 10 days or so I see something about uh, science says swearing makes you smarter or a better friend. Or the other one I see a lot is science says, which I don't know who like quote unquote science is, but the uh, being forgetful is a sign of intelligence. And people are like, well, I must be a genius. I know. I, know. I, I feel like I see these <laughs> four times a month and they always they always make me giggle a little bit. This next one is still is still good news. But of a of a much different kind, and um, I'll be curious to know if this actually has any accuracy to it. Do you want to you want to take our second one here? COVID nineteen mouthwash, not COVID nineteen mouthwash. So COVID nineteen, <laughs> it's about <laughs> that's that'd be bad. Thing. Colon, right? <laughs> Colon. That's where I punctuation's important. Uh -huh. uh, it says mouthwash can kill coronavirus within thirty seconds. Study finds oral rinses containing point zero seven percent of the ingredient. Uh, and it. I'm not going to be able to pronounce Say that. It, try it. Uh, Cetylperindinium chloride show, quote, promising signs of reducing COVID-19. So it's all thing about mouth mouthwash being able to kill COVID-19. I actually heard this from my dad because my brother and I have always made fun of my dad because growing up, we'd actually like wake up to my dad using mouthwash. And like we would like that's this indelible childhood memory. Oh, so my really? dad texted my brother and I both the other day seeing basically like, hey, I was ahead of my time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, 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 
remember the first time I tried the um, the alcohol-free mouthwash. I don't know if uh-huh. this, what this says about me. I People were like, it's just as effective, but it like, didn't burn my mouth to the point of crying. And I was like, I don't like it. I want, I want to feel the burn. I want to feel like <laughs> it's just annihilating the germs in my mouth. I don't know if you're a mouthwash guy or not. But. I am not. I am not. But yeah, that's uh, and it, it tells you again, COVID-19, right? We're finding out everything, different days. And someday maybe people will go back and read this and go, yeah, of course. Or they're going to go, can you believe what these people thought? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, mm-hmm. mouthwash. All right. We got two more. Uh, and I really want to get to this last one because I know that you have like some thoughts and commentary on it. But this yep. this was just too good to pass up. It's from uh, Megan Briggs at churchleaders.com. From 15,000 to 125,000, Biden plans to raise refugee admission ceiling. What is happening with this one? Yeah. And this is, uh, if you remember, multiple times on the show, we've had on Matthew Sorens mm-hmm. from World Relief. And uh, he's been on a bunch. He was on the week where you were gone like a month ago. And we talked about this. And he basically said, like, we're bringing in next to no refugees. And uh, and and now it looks like if uh, when Joe Biden takes office, that they're going to raise that 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 cap that Matt Sorens talked a lot about uh, from a historic low of 15,000 back up to a hundred and twenty five thousand. And that sounds like a great thing. I just know from talking to someone like Matt Sorens, who's brilliant and is immersed in this, Mm -hmm. how much he said that this is a big deal makes me think this is a really big deal and something the church uh, should be cheering on. And and as uh, I think Christiane Day had an article about this today that said the church has to be also preparing itself for this as well. Yeah. And just as a quick plug, uh, you said Matt Sorens, but also World Relief. Go and check them out. Just yes. uh, incredible falls on social media. A lot of great resources. There might be stuff that you disagree with, but the work that World Relief has done and is doing right now, I think, is is second to none. OK, so you mentioned this. I think it was after the show, maybe or somewhere in between. Um, I'd love for you just kind of you're the sports guy, right? Self-proclaimed sports guy. Why don't you uh, take this last one? Self-proclaimed sports guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And this is big news here in the Chicagoland area. Theo Epstein is leaving the Cubs after nine seasons. He brought them a World Series title. Theo Epstein undoubtedly will be a Hall of Fame executive because he led the teams that broke the two biggest curses in all of Major League Baseball, that being uh, the Boston Red Sox and then the Chicago Cubs. Uh, Theo, if you're listening, uh, the New York Mets would like you. So my team, <laughs> if you would like to go move to the Big Apple, that would be wonderful. But Epstein said he's going to take a year at least off. He said there will be a third act. He, he's going to stay connected to baseball. He's going to be in baseball, uh, but that he wants to spend some time with his family. And uh, we'll see, you know, we'll see if that ends up happening uh, or how much time he takes off. But the thing I told you yesterday as kind of an interesting leadership uh, was this that he explained that the move was in part because of a philosophy he picked up from longtime 49ers coach uh, Bill Walsh. Walsh believed that coaches and executives benefited from a change of scenery every 10 years. Hmm. And so in that sense, Epstein's departure from the Cubs comes right at the right time. And so I just found this, I said this to you, is because I don't know if it's just coaches and executives, like does this play in for pastors for CEOs, for whatever else, this kind of, um, and there are some church studies that kind of say things around this, but his uh, taking from Bill Walsh going, you know what, after 10 years, it's time for a new voice. They're not hearing you as much. Things get stale and the 10 years is kind of his limit. And he said that that's literally one of the reasons that he chose now to get out. I don't, you know, I've heard things like that, and I didn't know that this was kind of a thing Bill Walsh said and other people stick to, but it does have some repercussions across the board, including in the church world, I would think. 
how long have you been at Four Corners now? Eleven years. <laughs> well, and I don't. I mean, you don't need to air all your dirty laundry. Is there any? Do you do you sense any? Uh, maybe I'll ask it this way. Having now been at the place which you planted, so that's a little different. But having yep. now been, you know, in place for more than a decade, can you understand that perspective a little bit? You're like, oh, I could see why, or are you like, no, that's we need to bring back because it feels like historically, when, when I was a kid, at least, it was way more common for pastors to be somewhere twenty, twenty five, thirty years, and that does feel like that's happening less and less. Yeah, I've actually verbalized this, <laughs> not only to like my head elder, but like to people close to me, not mm. like, oh, I need to get out. It's been 10 years, but going, is it, do you think this church needs a new voice? Do you mm. think that, you know, asking people, I think this is a thing uh, that it also gets to Rick Warren's thing where he says he replants his church in his mind every year or two. Mm. It it kind of gets at this. Now, churches are weird because they turn people over so much. So That's in 10 true. years, it's almost like a different church. That's true. Uh, but I also read another study uh, pertaining to churches that said your greatest voice in your church is from year six through 10. Uh, it's not true for everybody, right? That's kind wow. of a general statement, but it gets at this exact thing. I think churches, pastors, and also their their leadership, elder boards and such, need to have the willingness to have these honest conversations and just go, uh, is this still working? Let's keep talking about it instead of just assuming you'll be around for 30 years. So I do think there's some truth to this across the board, including in churches. That is fascinating. Like always, that is posted with every other article on our Facebook page, also our Twitter account. We'd love to know, what do you think? Agree, disagree? Do you have uh, suggestions for other angles or perspectives? You can do all of that on Facebook and Twitter. I mentioned it before, coming up next, Dr. David Anderson, both the founder of Safe Families and a licensed clinical psychologist, is going to join us for the next two segments here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. And Brian, I got to be honest, I am so thrilled about our next guest. We've talked about Safe Families a number of times here on right. this show. And if uh, you're not familiar, go back and listen to the podcast. But the founder of Safe Families, Dr. David Anderson, is here with us. Welcome to the show, sir. Great. It's so great to be here. Thank you so much. Hey, it's our pleasure. W would you take a, a minute or two or five, if you want, and uh, just introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. Yeah. So, uh, Dave Anderson, I'm a, actually a child psychologist. I spent my career in working with in the area of child abuse, um, helping kids who have been harmed and, you know, mm -hmm. kind of address their the psychological impact of child abuse, then got interested in being a social entrepreneur and developed this idea called Safe Families. Um, and I could tell you more about it, but kind of in addition, I was a church planning pastor um, mm -hmm. and kind of had that role kind of bivocationally. So, you know, did everything with Safe Families about the power of the church and, and really wrote a chapter called Unleashing the Family. And um, then I also... Um, you come from a very rich Christian heritage. My grandfather was with Hudson Taylor in China and my, my great grandfather, my grandfather was, you know, worked at us, ran a seminary and, and just have been a person of faith my entire life. So I have actually a foster son who's 30 something. And, uh, my, my two, uh, oldest children are 27 and 25. And then I, we adopted a safe family child who is 16 and a half. So, wow. oh, well, Dave, we're, we're so grateful for you coming on. As Ian said, both of us have had experience with safe families and mm -hmm. just such a great organization. Before we jump into what safe families does, I'm curious as to uh, why did you start it in the first place? Why did you decide to start safe families? 
Oh, wow. I'm glad you asked that. So two reasons. One is, um, you know, I just was so burdened by the fact of kids being harmed, right? Not just the difficulty of the impact of child abuse on children and, and what that means to, to be in that situation. But then once they once they end up going into foster care, it's almost like a a re a re-traumatizing because you're mm. you're forced removed from your parents, you bounce from home to home. It's just as a, a troubling when I started Safe Families when you know 17 years ago, there were 52,000 kids in foster care. Today, I think it's a, it's down to 17,000. We take about a thousand out a year, um, and it just that you know once a child goes into foster care, parents only really have a 20% chance to get them back again. And, no and so some of those stats really bother me. But more important to me, I was pastoring a church, you know, and I'm a person really believe in evangelism, have a heart for for that whole area, and um, really believe that the Christian family is the, I, I don't know, I wrote the chapter on it, is the most powerful change agent in our society. Hmm. Um, however, we teach our families to defend your family, protect your family, guard your family, all these defensive strategies. And I really believe that you know, we're called to unleash our families. And and when we do so, and we do so together, um, we could really change our world. A friend of mine who was pastoring a large church, he said, you know, Dave, the cool thing about safe families is that you've given the church back its voice. Because not only, I mean, like, yeah, you're helping a family, but when you do so together and you're actually like dropping the number of kids going into the system, right. and it's because people of faith are living out their faith. Um, it 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 kind of empowers them, gives them a voice that maybe they. I always believed it's you know not not everybody's at this time, you know, are open to hear the gospel, but they are open mm-hmm. to see the gospel, right? Yes. So yes. if they can see it out in someone's life first, see it lived out then they'll be much more receptive to hearing. So it's just a different, I don't know, I feel like it's just a different way to do things. So I love that. I'll, I'll be honest. I remember the first time that I learned about Safe Families a number of years ago, I was almost like jealous I hadn't thought of the idea first. Like it just was one of those, <laughs> oh, of course, like that makes so much sense and to mobilize yeah. families and churches. And you you touched on it a little bit. You know, we call that in the biz a tease. Could you tell us a little bit more about what Safe Families actually does and, and how people might be able to partner with it? Yeah, so what we do is, you know, for us, it's all about protecting kids and really coming alongside their parents and supporting them. I don't know if you know this, but the biggest driver of child abuse in our society is this thing called social isolation. Mm-hmm. That just means that a parent has no one else to turn to, right, mm-hmm. when bad things happen. And I just can't imagine that, right? I, I go to a small group. I have friends in my church. If anything happened, you know, at one point something bad happened to me. And and I had probably, my wife had, I wasn't available. My wife probably had a dozen people call and say, how can I help you? Can I take your kids off your hands while you mm. deal with this situation? Right. And it's just shocking to me that there are people in our society that literally do not have anyone else 
to help them out. And that was the simplicity of safe families. It's we're really dealing with this problem of social isolation that, you know, when you're a parent and you begin to have bad things happen, your defensive strategies, how you cope with problems really begins to become problematic. And that's when bad things happen. So Mm -hmm. if we can build in caring people to come alongside them, to befriend them, to have Mm. a safe place for a kid for a while while a parent readjusts and gets back on their feet, um, you could really begin to make a substantial difference in this world. And, yeah. and not only, and I could, I don't want, I mean, it just, it, it's just surprised me how it has not just grown here in Chicago where I started it, but expanded throughout the U.S. and really throughout the world. It's just as shocking to me wow. that it has grown at that level. That's not great. And, and Dave, how is Safe Families altogether different from the foster care system? Oh, that's that's really a great question. In some ways, substantial. One is nobody gets paid, which is a big deal, right? Foster care. You know, I remember I was, I was a foster parent and, and the mom, I was, my wife and I were trying to help said, hey, if I got paid or you got paid, I wouldn't be in this situation. And foster parents don't get paid a lot. But in her case, that would have made a big difference, you know, mm-hmm. and and it does create this, you know, kind of why are you doing this? You know, are you doing this for all? So one is that, that people don't get paid. The second is parents maintain all rights to their children. It's this idea that someone said parents who go into foster, their kids go into foster care, become invisible because they lose rights to their kid. They mm. don't have a voice. No one wants to hear what they have to say. They're seen by society as these horrible people and and they don't have a voice and Safe Families is all about, hey, you're the mom, you have a voice, you make decisions, we honor you, we support you. It's it's really this kind of almost like this this justice kind of, you know, you you are the God gave this child to you mm. until someone else, like a judge or someone else makes a decision. We're all about supporting you. I don't know if you there's this huge problem in foster care now called um, racial disparity, an idea that a ton of the system is filled with kids who are African-American and yet they only make up a smaller, you know, and so we feel like we have a big voice in that as well by supporting parents in that way. I love that. Founder of Safe Families, Dr. David Anderson. If you're not familiar, I cannot recommend enough that you at least visit the website because the ministry and the work that they do personally, I, I just think is some of the best that I've ever seen. And one of the things that I've been kind of dying to ask you about is, what has this last year been like for you and your ministry, especially with COVID? Have you had to pivot at all? Have you had to reframe or rethink? What, what has this year been like for Safe Families? Yeah, it's been really an, an kind of an incredible, both challenging and a blessing. You know, it's just amazing that during this time, during a pandemic, people are still willing to open up their home to strangers. It just mm-hmm. is miraculous, you know, and, and what a testimony. You know, I've been reading stories about prior pandemics and how the church has responded to different pandemics and and um and prior pandemics when everyone would flee because of i don't know malaria or something like that the church stood its ground and Mm -hmm. continued to serve in dramatic ways and really grabbed the attention of people it just is amazing we've we still are hosting we have more kids than ever um in the spring when the pandemic really um 
took took root. Um, we were engaging with the governor around getting an executive order for kids in foster care to go to safe families because foster homes were not being able to be found for kids. And, and it just, well, you know, and it's just great to be seen from a societal perf- perspective mm-hmm. as a resource to help in troubled times. And, mm-hmm. um, and I think during a pandemic when it is, tr- it's going to be even more troubling in the next two months right. to be able to have a movement of people that are countercultural and are moving in a, you know, as, as many mm-hmm. are shutting doors and, you know, kind of watching out for their own. There's a whole movement of people that, that are doing the opposite. It just, it grabs the attention of the world. I remember during the prior recession we had, and we had a whole movement of people when everyone was losing jobs and there's a whole movement of people opening their homes and it, it grabbed the attention. Katie Couric uh, from CBS news flew out and did a huge story on safe families. And then, Every national media did a story on safe families, and it just was, it just created hope and mm-hmm. inspiration to those who not are in the church, who are outside the church, but to be able to see people live out their lives in mm-hmm. such a dramatic, countercultural way has a powerful impact. I'm going to get preaching here, but I just, <laughs> I just it. am so excited about. <laughs> The uh, you know not just the tragedy of the pandemic, but the opportunities we have. So, mm. yeah. Well, let's give you some more chance to preach. Let's. Uh, uh, what would you say are the theological foundations, kind of the theological underpinnings that drive what you guys do at Safe Families? Yeah, you know it's funny. When I first started Safe Families, I spoke at a church and I told them my idea. You know, this group of people and this, I won't say which church. This guy came up after <laughs> me and said two questions. One is. Can you guarantee nothing will happen to my possessions if I take, take, uh, take in a child? And I, mm-hmm. he, you know, I was pastoring at the time, but he wasn't part of my church. I put my arm around him <laughs> and I said, "Brother, if you're hanging out to your possessions that tight, you should pray someone will do something to him." I don't know if you like that or not. Um, but then the second one is he said, "Hey, what's the theology of what's the theology behind why you're calling the church to this?" And I was like, "Oh my gosh, I went to seminary, but..." Honestly, I didn't do well, you know, in seminary. <laughs> I think I, I slept through that class. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but I said, hey, how about James 127? You know, pure religion is to care for orphans and widows. And he said, mm-hmm. oh, no, that doesn't count. These aren't, these aren't widows. You know, these aren't orphans. And mm-hmm. I, would bet, I would beg now, as I've been doing a while, they really are, maybe not in the traditional sense of an orphan where both parents are gone, but if your parents aren't able to protect you, you're considered vulnerable and an orphan. But then I mm. so, but then I was perplexed and I said, well, how about hospitality? Mm. And he was like, oh, no, what are you talking about? Like Martha Stewart? No, that's not. <laughs> no, that's not. <laughs> you know, that's that's better homes and garden. Hospitality committees of a church means you just set out coffee and cookies. And mm. and and I was like, no, you know, the original meaning of hospitality means love of strangers. And it was the most powerful strategy the church used during times of duress. When the church was under duress, you know, where you couldn't openly, like, say, evangelize, it was the practice of loving strangers that set the church apart and that brought it back to the forefront. And, And I said, that's really what Safe Families is about, is unleashing hospitality, not the Martha Stewart hospitality, but the radical, the 
I don't know, the, um, the biblical, powerful hospitality that changed our world. You know, there's all these terms that have been new, neutralized over the years, you know, that right, have right. lost its meaning. I really believe hospitality is one of them. Yeah. And hospitality was, I believe, is the most powerful strategy. That's why elders and pastors, I always wondered, why in the world are elders and pastors, what's the key character, what are the key characteristics is that they're hospitable. You know, I always wondered about that. You know, they're good at cooking pies and inviting people over to their house for cookies or something like that. And, and, and as I looked into it, it was like, no, because the practice of hospitality is much more powerful, deeper, and sacrificial than any of us fully realize. And so that's really the theology behind why we that. do what we do. Uh, yeah, I would, I would love for you just to take the last couple of minutes that we have left to help people understand how can they get involved. If they're listening yeah. and they're intrigued and they're thinking, oh, that really like stirs something in me, but I don't know if I have the bandwidth or if I'm the right fit. And maybe in answering that, if you could, I don't know, address some of maybe the hesitations that people might have. Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, there's all sorts of ways to get involved in safe families. The core is hosting children. And, you know, that's what we look for, people to open up their homes and take in a child. Or even nowadays, you know, I mean, you get a lot of retired folk. That, hey, I don't want to chase after a two-year-old, but I'll, I'll put a mom in my home, you know, an 18-year-old mom with a two-year-old and, and just allow them to be under, under our protection. You know, that's powerful. And so hosting is one. Our average stay really is six weeks. It could be a day or two. Parents could say, hey, I want kids younger than my kids. You know, I'll take a... But, you know, my wife and I, we take five to five to 10 year olds, you know, that's who we target. And so you could do that. But people don't realize we also look for volunteers who are what we call family friend, people who are willing to befriend moms, be a listening ear to them, support them as they get back on their feet, help them maybe find work or, or you know, address the barriers that they have. And then the third one is is what we call resource friends. You know, people might say, I don't want to host. I don't want to be a family friend. I don't really like people, but I have things or I can get things, you know, <laughs> I can get a mattress. I can get whatever, because we found that if we could provide these tangible supports, we could leverage tangible. So, so you know, we don't see ourselves. We, do, we don't do transactions. We do relationships and we leverage. If we're going to do a transaction, we leverage a transaction to build a relationship because relationships are the change agents in our work. I love that. Just briefly, what is the website or phone number or any anything that you'd like to give people as a way of getting a hold of you or the Yeah, if they want to call it's 773-653-2200 and um you know certainly you know obviously they could check us out at you know safe families um uh safe-families.org. That's our way. We I mean they they might get confused. We do have an explosion in the UK and so mm. there is a difference between the UK version and safe and ours in the US, but safe-families.org. That sounds great. Our guest today has been Dr. David Anderson, who is a clinical psychologist and the founder of Safe Families. If you didn't hear me say it earlier, please 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 check out their ministry and the work that they're doing and uh I think this is an incredible opportunity like you were saying for the church to to be the church, to live the gospel in our communities. Dr. Anderson, thank you so much for taking thank the time you. to be with us today. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's mm -hmm. been a pleasure. And you're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. 
Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins. Ian Simpkins? Did you hear that? <laughs> You're having some trouble. It was like my t- my tongue just went numb for a second, which you have like a dentist appointment coming up, don't you? I had it this morning, but I, I'm going to uh, oh, is more it today? work on Monday. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> How are you? It was <laughs> it was not as bad as I thought. So the, okay. the very short version of it is I cracked a tooth or a cap where I had a root canal at one point. And that was causing me a ton of pain, but the dentist yanked it out. And now I got to go back and like get it kind of finished off, but it was not nearly as painful as I thought. And in fact, I have, uh, it is, it has helped me very much, but yeah, I warned you that I might be in bad shape today, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm good. I'm good. And I eagerly awaited like a, a loopy slurring Brian Fromm. I thought that would be <laughs> probably like listening to the show at half speed. Actually, that's very, very yes. similar experience. I remember this is not what this segment's about at all, but I remember getting a tooth extracted. Uh, gosh, I was probably n- 1920 and they had to put they had to like shoot my gums like nine times i remember that and then i remember him showing me the device he goes this i call a mini tooth crowbar and i was like huh and then he proceeded <laughs> to like break my tooth into like four or five pieces and you can still hear oh, all that oh no he, and he's like Ugh. you get like he was like pushing on my mouth and i heard and like one chunk he's like oh almost done and i was like this is just Terrible. I wouldn't recommend it, by the way, if someone's thinking that sounds fun. I uh, nope. I would like to steer you away from that. Okay, so I love this conversation. Uh, not the one we're currently having, the one we're about to have. Um, <laughs> November 15th, JT English, which is a baller name over the Gospel Coalition. The headline reads, a congregation is not an audience. This is the mm-hmm. kind of thing that I know that you and I have at least touched on, but never done like a whole article on. So why don't you uh, get us into it? Yeah, he says, what is Jesus doing right now? According to Ephesians 4, he has ascended in heaven and is gifting uh, his church for greater mission and unity. Excuse me. He's giving leaders who equip all the saints for ministry so that the whole family can be built up in maturity. By contrast, we all too often create ministry systems that prioritize professional ministers, not the whole body. But Ephesians 4 reminds us that we need the entire church to be engaged in mission, not just professional ministers. This is what I like to call, he writes, deep discipleship, the invitation to all members into the task of building a unified church growing in Christ-like maturity. That's Jesus's mission. And if it's Jesus's mission, then it should be the local church's mission as well. Let's pause there. That's a good intro. Uh, What what do you think about his premise there that that the real Jesus is what what he wants out of the church is kind of an all hands on deck, a unity and everybody using their giftings? Uh, I think we probably sign off on that, right? <laughs> you always ask these leading questions that, that end with, don't you think? Right. Or right? I'm like, well, yeah, how do I? No, Brian, I disagree. I no. don't think anybody. Ephesians 4, garbage. <laughs> it's not even supposed to be in the Bible. No, that's, I mean, we reference Ephesians 4 a lot because of like the fivefold ministry stuff with Alan Hirsch and the mm-hmm. APES stuff. So like, that's in particular a passage that we we at Community go to a lot. But it is also the kind of thing, though, that I don't know if you've had this experience I do sometimes feel like non-pastoral leadership are sometimes suspicious of. They're like, well, of course, of course, as a pastor, you're going to think this. You're going to be all about the all hands on deck posture because, you know, we need volunteers to make this thing run or whatever. I've I've found not an avalanche of pushback, but certainly on occasion, a little bit of an eye roll like, yeah, of course, you'd love this idea. Of course, you love this passage. But yeah, I mean cards on the table. I do agree. I think, I think Christianity is uh participatory way more than it is spectator. 
Well, thank you for bouncing back from a terribly asked question there. That was well done. <laughs> yeah, that, wasn't, that wasn't terribly asked at all. I'm just busting your chops. No, it really was. I, I was done. I was like, what did I just say? Uh, so rather than just reading what he said, let me just give you what kind of the concept he's going to get at. He says this. I'll just read the one sentence. One trend that's common in the church is an expert amateur divide. Hmm. Uh, by that, he means, right, the experts, those who are getting paid uh, they think their job is to do ministry for the saints, not with the saints. And then kind of right. the amateurs, the people in the congregation, they kind of think, well, what do I have to offer? I'm just kind of receiving ministry as kind instead of in this together. Why is this expert amateur divide? Well, maybe how have you seen this in your own life play out and why is it so dangerous? Well, it's honestly a lot of the reason why when I was at Poplar, we moved to meeting in the round for a season. That mm. was part of it. Um, and I always feel a little torn on this one because I do understand why we have, you know, the level of musicianship on the stage and don't just give everybody a guitar, right? I do understand. I think some people actually really have the gift of teaching, of illuminating things that are complex or feel distant, making it feel understandable and near. I think that those are, I think there's giftings there. Uh, I do often think, and our buddy Aaron Nequist has weighed in on this a number of times. He's like, man, when we create like a, a U2 like experience on a Sunday, we're doing people a massive disservice for the rest of their week though, because that this mm-hmm. feels like such an event, such a production. And I'm not anti-production at all, actually. Being at community has helped me a lot in understanding like the beautiful artistry of the lighting or the graphics and the people who work tirelessly on those things. That's their ministry. That's their passion area. You know, so it's given me a lot more to to kind of grapple with. I do think big or small. We can always be wrestling with, is this more about pulling off a great event or about really not just calling people, but equipping people to be apprentices mm-hmm. to Jesus? Because when you do that, the natural outpouring of that, I think, is, well, how do I live this out in the world then? You know, we will often say that Sundays is the push, not the point. If Sunday is the point, if everything terminates on that experience, well, then, of course, you're going to that's going to lead to certain conclusions. But if it's like how we equip and encourage to send people back out on mission, well, then that changes the way that we interact with the different elements of the service. And I think that shift, I think that distinction is really important. I love this line. He says later on, God isn't interested in creating an audience. He wants participants. I think Mm -hmm. that really gets at it. And that talks about how the aim is for ministry and the goal of discipleship is Christ's likeness. Then all of our ministry goes towards those efforts. And he kind of ends here by saying, let's get busy at this. If it's it's a process Jesus is fully committed to. And so I think this is wonderful um, because I, I think the, the the blame for this goes on both ends. And again, you get it, right? Mm. Like the pastor is paid or the, or the staff is paid. So they should do have a little bit of a higher expectation. But it's, it's more so how do we view uh, expertise versus opportunity versus like uh, getting everybody involved and, and serving where they are most gifted. And that's where the church really begins to thrive. And uh, there, there's difficulties to this, obviously, especially during COVID. But uh, I think this kind of the article he talks about here, JT English, the Gospel Coalition, is something uh, for us as pastors and just as churches to really start to aim towards. Yeah. And I think for me, the the center of this passage is when he when he lists you know, teachers and apostles and all this to equip the saints for all the work of ministry. Who are the saints? It's the church, it's all, it's all of us. So right. the, the role isn't first and foremost to impress the saints or to wow the saints or to rally the saints. It's to equip the saints, to equip the church to be the church. And I think when you 
and I think this is more than just uh, org chart stuff. I think a lot of times this is part of what I meant by meeting in the round. You know, sometimes we we build church buildings that look like theaters and then are surprised when people behave like spectators. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. the architecture says it like I don't go. I mean, pre-COVID, I didn't go to a movie theater to <laughs> participate. I went to what? To be entertained like that's right. And I think sometimes, you know, we can sometimes almost perpetuate the sort of like expert amateur divide in a way that isn't helpful. And Ephesians four has, has long kind of hit me square between the eyes. Like, okay, if the role is to equip the saints, then what about how I divide my time and my hours on any given week is doing Mm -hmm. just that is, Mm -hmm. is walking along, helping people to, to better recognize and realize the giftedness and the wiring that God has given them uniquely and not just, I lock myself up 55 hours every week, just working on a killer sermon. Right. I want the sermon to 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 be a reflection of hard work and excellence obviously but not at the expense of everything else that is you know the work of a pastor and that's always right. uh, a bit of a tricky dance so i know that this one is maybe potentially controversial either way it's up at our facebook page and our twitter account we would love to know what you think uh coming up next though this is a bit of a right term but a really interesting topic uh liberals and conservatives have wildly different tv viewing habits but five should bring everyone together that's coming up next year on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, we have some holiday ideas. We're going to talk sleep. But first, liberals and conservatives have wildly different TV viewing habits. You're listening to The Common Good. Everyone, welcome back to the Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Who, don't worry, everyone, he safely has returned from the dentist, and he said, "And I quote, not as bad as I thought it was going to be." Yep. That's got to be a bummer, though, isn't that how most people feel about the dentist? But have you ever thought about how the dentist must feel? Like we back <laughs> wise about the experience all the time. Yeah. Like, do you think that that hurts their feelings? They had to have known that going in, though. Because that's true. Uh, that's a good point. And I will also pref. Uh, I will caveat this with the fact that I have to go back for what might be the more painful portion of the procedure on Monday. So ask me again on Monday afternoon. <laughs> My guess is they uh, they they get over the pain of having those comments told every time that they look at their bank account. No, and no. they're like, oh, I feel good again. I'm no. fine now. I'm okay. <laughs> My, My dentist here is actually pretty great. Yeah, it feels like we probably saw this coming two years ago, but this year in particular. We talked more politics than I think we anticipated and and not necessarily just about politics, but it's, you know, it's effect on faith and the church's response and how much should we even be talking about it from the pulpit or the show. But I, I just I found this article to be so fascinating. So it's political, but in a very different way. So here's the headline. Liberals and conservatives watch wildly different TV shows, but these five shows bring everyone together. The programs that Americans of all political stripes like to watch seem to be united by a common theme. So that to me, I don't know if this makes me weird. Uh, that that just piques all of my interest. I'm like, what? That's so interesting to me in a world where everything seems divided, where everyone seems to be at everyone else's throat. They're like, hey, we found a theme between five shows that everyone seems to really enjoy. So uh, why don't you get us into it? Yeah, so the beginning of this article basically says uh, that uh, that uh, divided along the political spectrum, kind of what you hinted at, is also determines what we like 
uh, in our casual viewing. So you would think when you read this headline, it's talking about like cable news or this. No, this is talking about when you're just watching a show for enjoyment. They've actually found how you vote and how your political ideology does go at uh, what you like. So here's the background. It says for the study, we surveyed more than 3000 people using national sample of the of U.S. population. Respondents were asked about their entertainment preferences, viewing behaviors and their feelings about specific TV. They are also asked about happiness, political beliefs, voting history, and personal traits. So it's separated this way. The blues who have liberal attitudes towards abortion, the environment, guns, marriage, immigration. This makes up 47% of the population. Purple, this is a swing group compo- comprising 18% of the population. They hold uh, positions across the political spectrum. And then reds make up 35% of the country and hold conservative views on most issues. And so that's the breakdown here. And here's some of the shows. Blues, like many more TV shows than Reds, and are open to viewing foreign films and TV series, as well as content that doesn't reflect their values. Many Blues said they enjoy watching Modern Family, Big Bang Theory, The Simpsons, South Park, and Law & Order SVU. Purples, on the other hand, are the most voracious TV viewers and enjoy more about the viewing experience than other groups. Some of their favorite shows include The Voice, Dancing with the Stars, but they also like Saturday Night Live and a favorite among blues as well. And oh, that was Saturday Night Live. And also the purples, they like Duck Dynasty, which is preferred by the Reds. Man, The Voice and Dancing with the Stars, it's like they walked into my house here. (laughs) Uh, Reds said they seldom watch entertainment TV, but when they do... Many claim they watch for an adrenaline boost. They prefer hmm. the Hallmark, History, and Ion channels. You ever thought of the Hallmark channels as an adrenaline boost? <laughs> and, no, uh, not typically. Far more than others, while their favorite show is NCIS. So that actually fits with some people that I know, I think, when I think about this. But then they said this. There is significant overlap. Five shows that all three ideological groups watched include, okay, these five are so different from each other, but here we go. (laughs) America's Funniest Home Videos, Bones, Criminal Minds, Mythbusters, and Pawn Stars. Four of these shows were well-liked, but Pawn Stars was actually one of the least liked in our sample of 50. We concluded that Pawn Mm. Stars had the dubious distinction of being the most hate-watched show in America. (laughs) And then they try to get into what do all of these shows have in common. But let me ask you, do you like that? Uh, I find that breakdown to be pretty fascinating. Do you, does that breakdown kind of make sense to you? No, none of it makes sense to me. I mean, I guess some of it does. Yeah, some of it does. There is a, I mean, I if if we had never found this article and you had just asked me point blank, hey, what do you think are the five shows mm-hmm. that most all Americans of any kind of political persuasion <laughs> would all enjoy? I don't think I would have gotten any of these right. No, like not even close. And I and I don't know why I think that. I don't know why I don't think I would get them right. Do you have a sense that you like? Is this a, a no brainer to you? You're like, oh yeah, of course it's these five. Like that makes perfect sense. So the five that make sense are in that blue category. If you're going to say they're more socially liberal, and that Reds who are more socially conservative uh, aren't going to watch these shows, to say Modern Family and The Simpsons and South Park makes a little bit of sense. Uh, it's kind of the other ones that feel really random to me. Like, okay, why why do people in the red category like the Hallmark Channel and NCIS? <laughs> Those yeah. don't seem to have a lot of crossover. But uh, they tr- let me. Can I can go can on. I get at why why he yes. thinks this is? Yes, go for like, it. This is what this is what I really want to ask you about. 
he says, my suspicion, one that we'll explore in the next iteration of the study, is that all four of these shows, and even Pawn Stars to an extent, value truth. And he kind of goes on to explain what he means by that. How interesting do you find that to be, that he, he thinks the common thread among the most unifying television shows is that they value truth. Do you agree, disagree? Are you surprised or not surprised by that? You know, it does surprise me a little bit. He even ends by saying cultural moment defined by moral panic around fake news and alternative facts. Perhaps this shouldn't come as a surprise, this whole idea of truth and debunking myths and this and that. I guess it doesn't. When he puts it like that, it doesn't surprise me. What does surprise me is that many of these same people are so much spending so much time watching cable news which kind of peddles an untruth than fake news, right? Like you would think that mm. you'd be like, well, then I'm not going to do that. Uh, and maybe there's an argument there to be said, well, no, we actually believe that what we are watching is truth and that the other cable news channels are off. But I, I do think it's interesting. Again, kind of what you said before, if you had asked me what's the common thread, I would have never have said truth. I would never have said, oh, there's a valuing of truth and finding the bad guy and dis- debunking myths and this and that. I wouldn't have said that, but uh, when they kind of put it out that way, I do think it makes a little bit of sense. Well, and I do, I want to issue an apology before we conclude here, because this whole segment, Brian, we keep saying he, I just like it's a, a guy that wrote this at the bottom. It's Johanna Blakely who wrote this. So uh, shame on us. Forgive us for getting that wrong. I love, I love the last paragraph she writes though. She says in a cultural moment defined by moral panic around fake news and alternative facts, perhaps it shouldn't come as a surprise that the neutral ground Americans of all political stripes have chosen is storytelling devoted to finding the bad guy, debunking the myth, and exposing how silly humans can really be. And I'll be honest, when she puts it that way, you're like, okay, yeah. you know what? You make a, you make a strong case. I, I'm, this is one of the things I love about this show is because I never would have thought to even seek out an article like this. It's not really a thought that's crossed my mind, although maybe it should have, like, in a time when everyone seems so divided, and we've done other stories and articles about, you know, how social media can sometimes perpetuate or exacerbate some of that. I do find it really interesting that this author at least seems to think that, hey, we can we can all at least I don't know that comfort's the right word, but it does give me some hope, though, that if that's if that has any bearing on like what actually does bring us together, mm-hmm. that the uh, the pursuit of truth might be, I don't know, might be near the list, near the top of the list to me. I just think is absolutely fascinating. Speaking of things that tend to divide people, uh, we got the holidays coming up, Brian. And so I found this article from Baptist News, five ways to make the holidays meaningful. That's coming up next year on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. I keep asking. I I know at least one of your guesses is going to be. Any chance you want to guess maybe multiple times what holidays are today? Mm. <laughs> Did World Kindness Day just happened, right? You read that one because I saw yes. that one in the news. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, today is uh, National Watch a Movie Day. Wow, that was a pretty good guess. I mean, it's, it's wrong. It's wrong. <laughs> it's, it's <a> <laughs> Thank you. Any, uh, any other guesses you want to make? Uh, National uh, Bagel with Cream Cheese Day. Mm, that's you're getting warmer. I am. Okay. Uh, but, what is it? But but no, no. Okay, here we go. It is um, Mickey Mouse's birthday. Which <laughs> that's funny. Seems insane that he has a, a birthday, but I guess he was created. So all right. Um, National Princess Day. Mm, okay. Okay. 
See, you have two young sons. If you had had little daughters, the princess, there is a stage where there's nothing bigger in this world than the princesses. Oh, that makes sense. I can see that. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. National Educational Support Professionals Day. I don't know what that means. Educational Support Professionals. I don't know what that is. but but, I got lost halfway through. But thank you to our educational support professionals. We appreciate your work. That 100%. Yes. And then this one, which I'm sure I'm not going to pronounce correctly. uh, National... Oh, <laughs> Sound it out. <laughs> I think it's Vichy Swaz. National Vichy Swaz Day. Does that does that ring a bell? Uh, no, it does not. Vichy Swaz. I think is like a. Uh, it's like a. It's like a soup or something, isn't it? Can you spell it for me? Let everyone else try to sound V-I- it. V I. Yeah. Right. Here we go. This is, this this is good, good radio. radio. <laughs> v- Are you ready for it? V I C H Y S S. O I S E. I I I think on I think it's French or something. It, it is a soup. I according Get to the Google out. machine, it is Get a soup. Out. Yes. Yes. Wow. Uh, I should. I need to just step away from the mic because I'm. That's a highlight. It's all downhill right there, from here. Yeah. Yeah. That. Uh, I'm not gonna lie. I feel pretty good about that. Oh. Okay. I don't know if I pronounced it correctly, but either way, it is a the- uh, it is a thick soup made of boiled and pureed leeks, onions, potatoes, cream, and chicken stock. It is traditionally served cold, but it can be eaten hot. I was gonna say, uh, without the cold part, that sounds delicious. <laughs> it's not bad. Uh, um, okay. Oh, I missed this. So those are all the weird ones. But in Germany, it's Repentance Day. Huh. I'm sorry. It's a common law holiday. Did you know that? No. You, you say I'm sorry. Everyone's walking around Germany going, I'm sorry. <laughs> hey, sorry. Yeah. Everyone gets like a board game. Sorry. Board game for the <laughs> Repentance Day. Uh, That's silly. Okay. I got a list here for you, Brian. I always feel bad if I go a whole show and don't give you a list. I appreciate um, it. This is something we talked a little bit about it yesterday. And every every family right now, we talked about it in staff meeting, like, how are you navigating the holidays? It, it was actually a pretty, it was kind of a bummer of a question because it was most people saying, yeah, this is the first time we haven't been with family for mm-hmm. Thanksgiving in 25 years. Some mm-hmm. people say, you know, so everyone's kind of trying to navigate this, but Baptist News Global, um, they do good work over there. So that's an opinion piece from a couple of weeks ago, five ways to make the holidays meaningful in 2020. What is going on? Yeah, Amber uh, Cantorna writes this. And like you said, it's just a helpful as we get to Thanksgiving and then Christmas. Uh, what can we do uh, if it's not safe, as it says here, to visit grandma or have all the loved ones around your table or a big Christmas party? So number one, she says, take advantage of the slower uh, slower pace. This holiday season, usually the holiday season usually is so filled with hustle and bustle of parties, events and shopping that we just operate in a constant state of chaos this year. Most of that chaos is being removed for us. So slowing down may be difficult, but this is an opportunity to focus on what is really important rather than getting sidetracked by the trivial, meaningless things that often rob us of our time uh, and our attention. Our hearts need healing and respite after such a tumultuous year. So don't rob yourself of that gift. So that's a good one. Take advantage of the slower pace. Okay, so this one makes me want to cheer because I feel like me and Marcus Brown have been uh, <laughs> championing this cause. Just us. I'm sure we're the only two people, I'm sure. Uh, consider observing Advent. If you don't already, consider observing Advent this year. With the long-lasting effects of a global pandemic, we all have things that we are grieving. Family we're missing, weddings that we've postponed, loved ones we've lost, graduations with far too few people present, big life moments that somehow feel empty dreams that have been paused trips that feel too far away to be excited about disappointment seems ever present and grief like our daily companion 
taking time to pause to reflect and to ground ourselves this holiday season may be just the thing our souls need. If you're looking for a progressive lens through which to view Advent, there are links to some different options there. Um, but even if it's not, even if you don't use those resources, even if there wasn't a pandemic, I feel like I would already be banging this drum here. But I think this is the perfect year to begin observing Advent if you never have. I can't recommend it enough. Next one's volunteer virtually. The holidays are typically a time of year when we look for ways to give back. We volunteer at the local soup kitchen, buy toys for kids whose parents are incarcerated or hand out sandwiches in the park. This year may be different, but that doesn't mean giving back has to stop. So earlier this year, the, uh, the author writes, our church did a volunteer-a-thon and provided a fantastic list of virtual opportunities. A couple other options would be doing safer at home service project uh, and, and things like that. You could also serve those in your local neighborhood by raking leaves or shoveling the driveway for someone with a chronic mm -hmm. illness, the elderly or a single mom. Whatever you choose to do, I encourage you to find ways to give back this holiday season. Families need it now more than ever. That's a good one. So here's one that my uh, my parents were always so intent on making sure that we prioritize delivered doorstep packages. Our family always did Meals on Wheels, but it goes on to say it will be hard to gather for our usual festivities this year like we're used to doing. However, that doesn't mean the fun has to stop. There are creative things we can do to still engage old traditions in new ways. You could use platforms like Elfster to create a virtual secret Santa among your coworkers, friends or family. You can also make goodie baskets with all of your favorite baked goods and deliver them to people's doorsteps. It keeps you safe and socially distanced while still sending love to those you care about. I can almost guarantee this will make their day. Remember, simple acts of kindness not only remind us of our humanity, but also of the fact that we are all connected and in this together. I love that one. Yeah. Take us home, Brian. Yeah, Paul. last one for parents. Be creative with your kids. If this year has been hard on us, it certainly has been hard on our kids. They, too, are enduring lots of change, disappointment, and fear. So I encourage you to sit down as a family and brainstorm ways to keep the holidays special. Perhaps make a list of all your ideas and put them in a basket. Then pull one out every time your family is looking for something to do together. Mm -hmm. A few ideas uh, that would offer you some fun while keeping you safe. Bake cookies together. Decorate a gingerbread house. Go ice skating or even ice fishing. Hmm. Build a snowman, sledding, doing a puzzle, Christmas movies, and others. And, of course, decorating your Christmas tree. Letting each family member choose at least one activity they want to do during the holidays will give them sense of belonging as well as a feeling of control over their environment during a time mm -hmm. that feels so out of control. Finally, if in past years you've taken your kids to visit Santa, consider dressing up like Santa yourself and make a home visit. This will create a memory that will last a lifetime. I really like that one. Like we can look at all the stuff we've lost, but use this as an opportunity to try to fill in those gaps with maybe some new traditions or some creative ideas. Can I just say something? No one's going to care about this except for me. It's it's always funny to me some of the some of the editing that you do on the fly because the sentence was uh, a memory for your young ones they're they're sure to never forget and on the fly you're like that will last a lifetime and I'm like what <laughs> where did where did that come from it, it's such a funny such a funny edit that I would never think to do on the fly props props to you Brian <laughs> thank you <laughs> this, is, this is how she ends I think this is a good challenge even if you don't like any of the suggestions she says yes the holidays will be different this year. But different does not have to be negative or bad. Lean in, dig deeper, and see what gems arise as you find new and meaningful ways to celebrate this season. That's that's really the whole purpose mm -hmm. for doing this article. I just thought that was a good reminder when even just thinking about staff meeting today when I was like, man, people are feeling real bummed, understandably, mm -hmm. you know, about how different all of this looks. I thought that's a good reminder and a good charge 
for parents, for individuals, for leaders, whatever it is, your stage of life or circumstance. I just thought that was a good call. And uh, those suggestions, this article is up at our Facebook page, as always, the, the Common Good Radio Show. And we'd love to know what you think. This next segment is just kind of for funsies. I just I'm curious. I want to talk a little bit about the subject matter. But the headline reads why six hours of sleep is as bad as none at all. That's coming up next year in the Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. How are you all doing today? Go ahead. Just shout it at your radio or your uh, mobile device. However you're listening to the show, make the people around you uncomfortable. Just shout how you're actually doing. I think that would be therapeutic. <laughs> anyway, this next article, Brian, I don't have any like deep existential angle on this, although we might find one because I I do find that like conversations regarding like rest and sleep are are deeply sacred spiritual conversations. Yes. That's not necessarily my angle with this one. And uh, we'll get into a little bit of our own sleep habits. I probably mentioned this before. I'm terrible at sleeping. I've never been good at prioritizing that in general. But here's the headline. It says, why six hours of sleep is as bad as none at all. Getting six hours of sleep a night simply isn't enough for you to be your most productive. In fact, it's just as bad as not hmm. sleeping at all. This is by Jill Duffy. What's going on here? Yeah, not getting enough sleep, she writes, is detrimental to your health and productivity. That <laughs> says, yawn. We've heard <laughs> it all before, but results from one study impress just how bad a cumulative lack of sleep can be for performance. Subjects in a lab-based sleep study who were allowed to get only six hours of sleep a night for two weeks straight functioned as poorly as those who were forced to stay awake for two days straight. The kicker is the people who slept six hours per night thought they were doing just fine. This mm -hmm. sleep deprivation study published in the journal Sleep took 48 adults <laughs> and restricted their sleep to a maximum of four, six or eight hours a night for two weeks. I would choose the eight. Uh, one unlucky <laughs> subset was deprived of sleep for three straight days. I've done it. Not sure. fun. No, it is not. During their time in the lab, the participants were tested every two hours, unless they were asleep, of course, on their cognitive performances, uh, as well as their reaction time. They also answered questions about their mood and any symptoms they were experiencing. Basically, how sleepy do you feel? So this answers why six hours of sleep isn't enough. As you can imagine, the subjects were allowed to sleep eight hours per night, had the highest performance on average. Subjects who got only four hours of sleep did worse each day. The group that got six hours of sleep seemed to be holding their own until around day 10 of the study. In the last few days of the experiment, the subjects who were restricted to a maximum of six hours of sleep per night showed cognitive performance that was as bad as the people who weren't allowed to sleep at all. Getting only six hours of shut-eye was as bad for not, as not sleeping for two days straight. The group who got only four hours of sleep each night performed just as poorly, but they hit their low sooner. And one of the most mm. alarming results of the sleep study is that the six-hour sleep group didn't rate their sleepiness as being all that bad, even as their cognitive performance was going downhill. So basically what it's saying is they oh, thought man. they were normal. Yeah, six hours is great. Uh, and it worked, uh, and they were not doing well. So I find that a little surprising. I don't know. Uh, you and I are in very different uh, sleep patterns. You've got little kids, and, and my kids now, they're in those teenage years where they sleep more than I do. Mm -hmm. Uh, but now the irony is then you get older and you just can't sleep in anymore. But, uh, yeah, I get the inconsistent sleep. I would have thought that six hours straight for, uh, you know, two weeks in a row would have been more than enough. So I got to, I'm going to say that I'm a little surprised by this one. 
I also am surprised. And again, I have mentioned that I historically am a terrible sleeper. I have done the three days in a row thing. Why? I do not recommend it. Um, I was in college. I just took on too many things. I said yes to too many things. A lot of it was school related, but let's be honest. A lot of it was not. It was just saying yes to stuff that I wanted to say yes to. And some of that was friends. Some of that was like extracurricular stuff. But after three in a row, man, uh, things start like changing colors on you and glowing. And I actually had to speak in chapel on that third day because I was the student body president. And it was I had to sit on stage for the entire chapel that was twice as long because it was a Founders Day chapel. And I was like, this is torture because literally the whole school is staring at me (laughs) on a stage for a chapel twice as long and I haven't slept. Oh, three days. I've never done that. It was brutal. In fact, I, I remember at the end of that, I went to my room and I had two roommates and I said, hey, I have to be up in like 17 minutes. Can you guys please wake me up in 17 minutes? I have an important meeting. They said, you got it. And then I woke up four hours later. I was like, <laughs> guys, what the heck? I was so mad. I stormed. I was like, what the heck? And they said, what? We we woke you up. You sat straight up and said to us with your eyes open, don't worry about it. I took care of it. And then went back to sleep. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my gosh. So my uh, subconscious is is very, uh, very convincing, apparently. That's but so I, funny. Yeah, I find this super interesting. And I, I think this next section is even more fascinating. It says we have no idea how much we sleep. Complicating matters is the fact that people are terrible at knowing how much time they actually spend asleep. According to the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System Survey, as reported by the CDC, more than 35% of Americans sleep less than seven hours in a typical day. That's one out of every three people. However, those who suffer from sleep problems don't accurately estimate how much they sleep each night. Research from the University of Chicago, for instance, shows that people are as likely to overestimate how much they sleep as to underestimate it. Another sleep study published in Epidemiology indicates people generally overestimate their nightly sleep by around 0.8 hours. The same study also estimates that every uh, that for every hour beyond six that people sleep, they overestimate sleep by about half an hour. If you think you sleep seven hours a night, uh, as one out of every three Americans does, it's entirely possible you're only getting six. Mm. That to me is just uh, this whole study I just find fascinating, to be honest. Yeah, and and sleep's just such a weird thing, isn't it? Like, uh, uh, you kind of like <laughs> is, adrenaline is it? hits at the wrong time. It says even later, there's just so many <laughs> things that cause us not to sleep well, whether it be diet and exercise, sleep right. apnea, obesity, whatever else it might be. So they say fixing bad sleep habits to get enough sleep is easier said than done. But if you're yeah. functioning as if you hadn't slept for two straight days, isn't it worthwhile? So it's actually... It's honestly like we're kind of joking about it. It is a kind of a big deal. If you're not getting sleep uh-huh. and even you know, especially like if you've ever dealt with somebody or talked to somebody close to you who's dealt with insomnia, it just is debilitating and and mm-hmm. they've really got to get it. But then just those of us who are like, oh, I can function fine on five hours. I can do six hours. And uh, it, this is kind of a big deal. And I'm not one who sleeps very much like I was joking with you off air. I could go to bed at midnight, one in the morning, which I never do anymore. Uh, and I would, my body would still wake up at six 30. Like it doesn't matter when I go to bed, I'm waking up at six 30. And that's just kind of, I've never been a late sleeper, but I think a study like this should be, uh, no pun intended, a little eye opening because, uh, nice because they're saying six hours, which I think a lot of us would be like, we'd sign up for six hours a night sometimes, uh, is not, is not doing yourself any favors. And then there's the whole other topic of just cause you're asleep. Doesn't mean you're sleeping well. And what does yeah, that right. look like? So, yeah, I, I find this article interesting, man. I, I, I think this is a good one. 
Well, and there's, I mean, a strong correlation between sleep apnea and obesity. It also says that other, uh, other causes of sleep problems include physical, neurological, and psychological issues. The CDC has called lack of sleep a health problem for good reason. I just, I find that interesting because it is kind of one of those, it's much like workaholism, right? We, we sort of, we like almost applaud workaholism, but you, you know, when you really get at the root of why that's a, a problem, it's as dangerous as a lot of these other things that we mm-hmm. take very, very seriously in sleep. I'll be honest. It's convicting even reading this article because I know that I'm probably in this category. And I say all of that to say, I think the Bible actually speaks a lot about the significance of rest mm-hmm. and rest and sleep aren't always the same, but like the, the prioritizing of working hard, but also the prioritizing of unplugging, of Sabbathing, of stepping back. And I think they're interconnected. And I've often found, you know, I just found myself really convicted by that question. Why is it so hard for you to sleep? Why is it, why is it so low on the totem pole? Why is it not more of a priority? And so either way, yeah, this, this wasn't really like a, like a Bible study segment as some people maybe want the whole show to be, but I found it really interesting. And uh, like always, that is up at our Facebook page, the common good radio show. And we would love to know what you think. Coming up next, a term that we use a lot, but I wonder if we really know what it means. Your church is your family. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good for the last time today. But fret not, we'll be back again tomorrow, 4 to 6 p.m. And every weekday from here until eternity. Until eternity? Is that the way to say it? Into eternity. Yeah, into eternity, not until yes. eternity. That doesn't make any sense. Nope. This is going to end up a Keith Conrad tweet, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> oh, man. This he is our test. Said, it's uh, our test I, if he's listening because that one would have gotten him. <laughs> I I tweeted something about uh, daylight saving time, and I it's, it was Twitter, and you can't edit it yet. So I accidentally put daylight savings time, and he just commented saving <laughs> i was like you're not you're not wrong but uh yeah i fully expected that to be a launch me into the sun comment. Yes. And it hasn't yet but maybe he if you want to keith go for it i uh you have my blessing um here at the gospel coalition second time today actually uh by megan hill a couple of days ago your church is your family i thought this was really well written because it's the kind of thing that it gets tossed around a lot. Like mm-hmm. we, we talk about church family a lot. And I, I do sometimes wonder, like, do we know what we're actually saying when we say that in the same way that we toss around words like, you know, community, mm-hmm. Oh, we're a community. Mm-hmm. Well, just because the word community is on the sign doesn't necessarily mean that you're functioning like a community. So I thought this topic was interesting, but also kind of timely as we're talking about the holidays looking much different than they typically do. So uh, do you want to get us into it? Yep. Uh, let's do this. It says, I learned the significance of brother and sister long before I began to use those biblical terms myself. As a child, I would half listen to my parents' side of a phone conversation, absorbed in a book, but mildly curious. The introductory chatter never gave me much, aroused much attention. Their transition to hushed pauses or solemn tones failed to fully engage my interest. But then I would hear my dad address the caller as brother and I'd look up from the page. The person on the phone was undoubtedly a member of our church family, and whether he was calling about his ominous medical diagnosis or stopping by to borrow some chairs, it was probably going to affect my life. In biblical terms, the people in the pews around us are our family. Like the members of our biological family, we haven't chosen them for ourselves, but they have been chosen for us, and we are therefore inseparably bound to them. Because we belong to Christ, we belong to his family. Uh, In John's account of the crucifixion, we read that when Jesus saw his mother, 
uh, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. At Christ's declaration, Mary and John became family to one another and demonstrated mm-hmm. all the loyalty we would expect from a biological mother and son. Uh, he talks about how late she talks about how later Paul wanted the Roman church to welcome Phoebe as our sister. Uh, Sylvanus, Sylvanus uh, call him a faithful brother. Uh, going further down, acknowledging the fact of our sibling relationship isn't an intellectual exercise. It's a profound truth that should stir deep emotions and overflow in tangible expression. Because these people are family, we learn their names and we find out their interests. We display, quote, brotherly affection for all of them, uh, renouncing any hint of partiality in hundreds of ways. We seek to say, you're my brothers and sisters, and I love you. Throughout the New Testament, Jesus commands mutual care uh, in the church. He talks about all the one another's. The church is not a man-made society that we can participate in or opt out of according to our own level of comfort. The PTA, the Neighborhood Association, the Library Booster Club don't obligate us to personal sacrifice when things get tough. Family does. As a result, mm-hmm. we will expect to have less money, less free time than we should have on our own. We'll expect to have added sorrow, but we will also have added joy. So that's speaking to the brother and sister element uh, of those within the church. And then it's going to go on to talk about Jesus as our brother. But before that part of it, uh, what do you just think about? You said we throw that term around a lot, but her description of what we're actually saying when we call one another uh, brother and sister and family. Yeah, I was actually thinking of a a very specific encounter from a few years ago where uh, I was at a different church and there was there was just a lot there was a lot of difficulty there's a lot of things that we need to kind of work through as as a church family and i remember we had a we had a meeting and it 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 didn't get inappropriately heated it was it was definitely impassioned though for sure and people were disagreeing and we invited that and there was nothing nothing uh, that was like you know out of bounds at this point but there certainly was like a disagreement and i remember someone saying guys why why are we fighting i thought we were supposed to be a family and i said <laughs> I don't know what kind of family you grew up in, but my in my family we fight. We fight because there's safety to fight, to bring up grievances, to be really blunt and honest mm. with one another. And yeah. I, that was like a really, it was a an interesting turning point for me because oh, I, when I think of family, I don't think of the absence of conflict. That's right. I think of like the freedom to engage in conflict, to see like this author is saying to not only celebrate the highs but like enter into the lows. Like if you're just my buddy that I see on Sundays, well, then I'm, I don't feel as obligated to like enter into your sorrows to, to, to grieve and weep with you when things get tough. But like something happens to my biological brother, I don't have to be convinced for my heart to break. You know what I mean? Like it, that just sure. already, that happens instinctually because like, no, oh, that's, that's my brother. That's my family. Like family is everything. And there's, yeah, a, a bummer of a sense to me sometimes that we, that the word does sometimes get tossed around as if like family and like acquaintance are interchangeable. And I don't think they are. And I love what she says. It's like, it's not this, it's not like a program that we just kind of opt in or out of like the PTA or the library booster club, right? The family requires sacrifice. Like I, the other example that I, I gave when we were talking about this, you know, way back when was that uh, like in my family, if my mom brought out dinner and I said like, no, nah, I don't want that. Try again. Um <laughs> Like I'd How'd be going go to bed early. Yeah. Very <laughs> yeah. Right. But people will do that at a restaurant. Like this isn't cooked right. Try again. And, and sometimes when we treat church like that, I think we forget that like, no, we were participants in this. There's like, 
family sacrifices for family. And I think if we don't really call people to that, you know, like we were talking about earlier in the show, it's pretty inevitable that we will develop spectator Christians. And I just think the family metaphor motif is is such an important and powerful one to call people to. Absolutely. And later on, she's going to say, uh, ultimately, our joy in our spiritual family comes from something greater than our daily experience of life with the ordinary people who belong to the local church. Our joy comes from Christ, our brother, who is making everyone in the family like himself, talks about Romans 8. And it says, the whole work of redemption has this in view, a vast family where all the members look increasingly like their older brother. And for the sake of time, I'll stop there. But this idea that we are united as brothers and sisters uh, under the lordship of Jesus, but that he's called our brother, God is called our father. And I just like the picture you painted there, man, of, you know, uh, families, uh, we all deal with this. Like family's not easy. Like there's times families frustrate. Family and but you can never just send a text that just says, "Hey, I'm out." You know, and obviously there's really yeah. outlier circumstances where things are really bad. But for the vast majority yeah. of us, you're just not going to go. You know what? I'm going to go find another family that that makes it a little bit easier. You don't just opt out. And and so that when we use that word family, and I think you're right when you said sometimes it's sad that we just kind of throw this word around. But what we're saying is we are united to one another. We're united to our brother Jesus. Uh, God is our heavenly mm. Father. I think the imagery. Uh, is appropriately really strong. And I think it would do us well to really sit in it and and kind of uh, think about the ramifications, both good and, and, and difficult of that picture. Yeah, I totally agree. She, she does go on actually to, uh, to do a great job of proposing the notion where I think a lot of churches maybe don't go there. Jesus as our brother, I think is, is an important one. And here's, here's how she ends. She says, as we affirm our relationship to the people of our local church and overflow with affection for them, We testify loudly to the world that we are not ashamed to call them brothers either, not because they are perfect, but because they are becoming made like our only sibling who is. In our Christian brothers and sisters, we can see something the world cannot. We can see Christ himself. I read that and I thought, Mm I mean, that to me is a lot of how I try to think about wedding ceremonies. Like your union is is a glimpse of... God's love for us. It's a glimpse of the bride of Christ. Like it's the signpost. And I just thought this, yeah, this call, especially during, you know, uh, a season and in particular the next few weeks where we're thinking a lot about families and maybe being frustrated by the circumstances before us. I think just this call, especially this call for Christ followers to, to maybe elevate the way that we see our brothers and sisters in Christ in a way that we haven't before, and I just find to be really, really helpful. So, like always, hi Pippa. Uh, at the that very is, end, she got the in. Very <laughs> end, she knows. She's looking at the clock. She knows what's oh. up. <laughs> oh, man. But that and every other article is up on our Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you there. And that wraps up our Hump Day show. But for now, we'll be back again tomorrow from four to six p.m. for Brian Fromm and Pippa. My Thank name you. is Ian Simpkins, <laughs> and you've been listening to the Common Good on AM eleven sixty. Bark for your life. <laughs>